we compete with Tinder. You know, that sort of lays it out right there. significant business in California already and if you can do business in California you can do business anywhere but one thing that I hadn't heard about that you say that you liked a lot was yeah yeah can yep. you tell us about that you said you weren't even affiliated with it or anything but right just no interesting. I am not and it's one of those things I don't even like to share because it's really <laughs> a competitive advantage all right. Well, my name is Johnny Lee Hain. I live in Rhinebeck, New York, in beautiful Hudson Valley, which is between New York City and Albany, for those of you not familiar with the area. And I'm one of the three owners of Club Waka, which is a nationwide sport and social club for adults 21 and up. My day-to-day -day role at Club Waka is the director of sales and operations, as well as one of the three board members or owners that helps drive strategy, as well as execution in the sales and operations role. In addition to that, I also do have a few other endeavors that I'm involved in, a Modest Angel Investment Fund and the recent preparation to launch a collaborative co-working space, a lot of co's, named Co. But that is me in a nutshell. And did you grow up wanting to be like a kickball captain? So you wanted to start your own league or how'd that happen? Yeah, great question. And no, I grew up wanting to be a copycat kid to my electrical engineering dad who worked at IBM for 38 years. I geeked out on computers and PCs from a young age when I wanted video games, which I don't even think we called them them yet. My dad threw a coding book at me and told me to type in the code in there. So I went to school to get a degree in electrical engineering. And I think though I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, the word was not in my lexicon. I always thought I wanted to do something in home automation. It was mid 80s, early 90s, and some of that was just starting and that sounded neat. And so I think that was in the back of my mind as I was going to get my degree in electrical engineering. But I ended up in Washington, D.C. to get that degree at Catholic University of America. And I stayed there after school, bopped around a couple jobs, small software startups, I ended up at America Online, AOL, which has come and gone as a giant of the internet. But while I was there, I met a guy who had a similar mind as I do for partying and traveling and hanging out in bars, or as I did. He had gone to UVA, and a few of his friends were also in the D.C. area. And together, we were at a bar, as we were prone to do after work or late at night, and we're sort of wondering what else we could do and what's a good excuse to be in a bar on a Thursday night or a Monday night. And somebody mentioned kickball and why don't we play kickball anymore? And sort of in the same breath, and it really pulls out a lot of our shared history that I can share a little more about in terms of social clubs creating fun. But we had the idea talking about it. We turned around to some of the people in the bar around us. They were like, if you start a kickball league, I am definitely going to play in a kickball league and happened to know the owner of the bar who had gone to college with me. And Brennan Kelly said, if you start a kickball league and bring it here, I'll buy you the t-shirts. We heard business model out of that. And fortunately, my business partner still to this day, David Laurie, did not let that idea, like many good ideas hatched in a bar, 
just sit there in a hangover haze. But the next day he called us all and was like, we should really do this. This is a good idea. And it was a hobby for quite a few years among first five of us, then four of us, and then three of us. But we stuck with it. And one by one, we made it our full-time gig. And that was nearly 20 years ago that the idea was hatched. Here we are today in over 40 cities across the U.S., providing kickball and other social sports for about 100,000 young adults every year. So the very next day, were you just putting like rough draft numbers to try to figure out, hey, can we make this financially work? Or were you just doing it straight for social at first? Just say, hey, let's get some friends together so we can go drink somewhere. Good question. A little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, as I like to say. We called it WAKA, W-A-K-A, which meant Washington Area Kickball Association for maybe like five minutes. And then we were like, no, that's World Adult Kickball Association. (laughs) Was that the next day in the bar you figured that out? Yeah, I think that might have been the next day in the bar. It was one of those ideas that caught on and we sort of imagined grand things right away, but we didn't really put spreadsheets together right away. First, it was like, will this even work? The funny thing is none of us are sports guys at all. Like I like watching Notre Dame football. The other guys went to UVA. They had a good football team. So we were enthusiasts from a spectator level, but none of us played sports in college or high school. I think David ran in track. I don't think Jimmy did anything like that. We actually brought in another guy from AOL who was all about sports. And we're like, Chris, you need to join us so that we can write some credible rules and know what we're doing. And we had a lot of fun with him. But after the first year, he was like, this is a lot of fun. And he played for several years after that. But he saw that we had an ambition about a social club that was beyond what he was prepared to dig into. But within the first, you know, once we got it off the ground and proved that, yes, adults can enjoy kickball and have a great time at a bar afterward, we did start playing with numbers. What does that look like in terms of registration revenue from the players? What does that look like in terms of sponsorship from bars? Who else can you get sponsorships from? But a lot of it happened by chance, as a lot of things do. But as soon as we saw something happen by chance, we would try to convert that into something that would happen intentionally. The first time's an accident, do it twice and it's on purpose. And the third time it's a revenue stream. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Can you talk to us a little bit more about figuring out that revenue stream? Sure. Our basic revenue stream is that we provide leagues that last, you play one night a week for eight to 12 weeks, and you pay as an individual for the pleasure of playing in that league and getting a t-shirt and some discounts at the bar, as well as some discounts and access to some special events and parties. We also have a team model that slightly different pricing model per participant, but very similar thing. That's about 85 to 90% of our revenue is those individual league registrations. The rest of the revenue comes from bar sponsorships, where bars pay us for the pleasure to host our players, because unlike at the time a traditional sports league, whether it was private or run by a municipal rec, we ensured that all the teams went to one bar or establishment. So we could turn a Monday night into a Friday night. We would pack 100, 200, 300 people into a bar on a weeknight from 6.30 to 10.30 or 11 and really change the revenue model of bars, especially if we were running leagues into their bar two, three, four nights a week, typically weeknights. They would pay us for that. It's basically a marketing expense for them and they would provide discounts. So that, as I alluded to when the first bar owner at Kelly's Irish Times said he would buy t-shirts, I was like, I'll buy the t-shirts we're going to charge you a fixed cost based on the size of the league. 
And then the third major component is other sponsors. The obvious first choice, again, this happened somewhat incidentally, are beer companies because we move a lot of beer in those bars. The local beer company distributor noticed that there was a lot more beer pushing through this bar and other bars that we worked with on weeknights and wanted to know why, learned about us, started doing deals directly with the bar. But as we learned about them and as we got bigger and went into multiple bars, this friend of mine basically suggested a direct relationship. Our first check over a couple thousand dollars came from a beer company and our first six-figure sponsorship came from a beer company. So those two make up the other 10% of our revenue. And that's pretty much the whole model. There's a small piece that is merchandise. We do sell performance t-shirts as an upsell. We do sell our kickball. You can see in Dick's stores and buy online. That stuff is really a it's more of a marketing play and a cost covering measure than actually a revenue source that we focus on. And can you just explain for a second the beer company where you said you could make six figures off of it? So are they just giving you beer after each game? That's the only part that I'm uh, right. Not no, absolutely. So that would be a nationwide partner. In 2016, Anheuser Busch recognized that not just Club Waka, but the industry as a whole was a valuable target market for them. And they went out and looked to partner with the largest, most active social sports clubs in the U.S. And we are the biggest, if not one of the biggest, the biggest, I believe. And so we did a cash and product deal with them. We promoted them on our website, on all our media, in our social media. We did promotions around the brand. So there was a very close brand tie-in, just like you'll see in professional sports on television or in these stadiums. So there is a cash component and there is also or can be a product component. And there can also be a buyback component where that is allowed by law, where we would, as part of an agreement, agree to purchase or support the purchase of some of the product of the sponsoring company. I guess you had to have a lot of lawyer talk to make sure everything, because that seems like a lot of details to make sure you get it done right. Yes, I've gotten to know lawyers for sponsorship and other reasons in great detail. Working in 30 plus states, you get to know a lot about lawyers and the laws in different states and how you can manage that. So let's talk about the timeframes. When you first started and then how many years it took for you to be full-time, what the transition was like, I guess, maybe working for a startup or a different company and then being able to go in with the partners to do walk a kickball. So it was, again, a little bit of serendipity, a little bit of intention. We started the advice of a lawyer friend as a not-for-profit because our understanding was there was less liability. That may be true. So for the first few years, we were a single league, first year, seven teams, 150 players, paper registration. I think we charged people 25 bucks a head to play in our league in D.C. on the National Mall. And it was enough money to buy us some pizzas and cool trophies and throw a little bit of a party. The second year, we still only did one league, but so one league in the spring, summertime, total hobby, right? But we enjoyed what we were doing so much, in part because it was a great shtick to talk about in the bars, as well as actually doing it was a lot of fun, that we talked about it year-round, and we did see a larger opportunity because this was early internet days. We had set up a simple web page with our schedule and claiming to be the World Adult Kickball Association. 
So we started getting interest from around the country and even around the world right away. So we knew there was something there, right? There was a market resonance in terms that I would use today that I wouldn't necessarily have used back then. Sometimes different team members, whether it was David or Jimmy or myself, would push and say, we got to do more with this. We got to work on this more. Second year, again, single league, but it was 16 teams, more players. Next year, it was even bigger. I think we had multiple leagues, still a not-for-profit. But at the end of every season, we would sort of get together and say, this is a lot of work. Are we going to do this again? It's not really paying any bills or anything. It's just a little bit of play money compared to our day jobs. But I think the next year, as we continued to grow, we realized that we wanted to treat it as a for-profit and as a business. So we converted to a for-profit because we were on the cusp of acting like a for-profit, right? We were looking to make money out of it, not for an altruistic higher cause, except maybe to provide fun. So we made that conversion. At the same time, this was around 2001, the internet dot bomb or market correction. And a lot of startups and software consultant companies shrunk very quickly. One of them was the one that Jimmy Walachek, my business partner and now CEO of Waka, was working at. And he was like the fourth man hired by the company and like the third to last guy let go in this tightening of the belt era. And he spent about half his time looking for a job, half his time working on Waka. So when you work on something, it grows. He took that opportunity to follow up on some of those inquiries and requests from other parts of the country and helped get Waka leagues off the ground in Boston and San Francisco and Miami. And some of that was just cold call inquiries and emails. And some of that was that DC is a very transient place. So our players had moved around the country and they were like, hey, I want to help start a league where I live because that was the most fun and I know I can meet a lot of people. Jimmy started working on that and we did grow and we grew significantly. And at the same time, we had started increasing our pricing a little bit and moved into an online registration system, first with a third party, then with our own. That all allowed us to contemplate seriously when Jimmy said, you know what, guys, I think that this is the job for me and that you guys should hire me full time. Here's a plan that I think I can grow to make it not just cover my costs, but to really help us achieve some of these ridiculous ideas that we've had about how big this can get. And David basically said, you know what, we should both go full time. The plan looked good and we agreed. And those two guys went full time in 2002, I think. That's when we really started growing. They basically went on a tour of sorts promoting through showing up in bars with a kickball under their arm and culling email lists of everybody that had expressed interest or sent us an email in the past and going to places where we had seen some interest. And we started creating some processes to see if anyone among the people that had expressed interest would make a good part-time community coordinator. That's what we call them today. I don't know if I remember what we called them at that time. We might have called them a league president because we started out with a league model as a separate, unincorporated, not-for-profit, even when we went for-profit. Again, sort of a liability mitigation technique. But we groomed certain individuals in each of those markets as leaders and empowered them. They went on a roadshow, started kicking off leagues in cities all over the U.S. When we were going for just how many cities we can be in, which is what we went in sort of our fifth through 15th year, I would say. So from mid-2005 to 2000, or around 2005, rather, to around 2014, we were just like, how many cities can we be in with just kickball? We topped out at over 70 cities across the U.S. That was basically just using that mechanism, finding places where people were interested in playing, 
going into that market and meeting them and kicking up the dust in the bars and on the kickball field, giving a little bit of free sample, right? Provide some kickball games, experience at the bar afterward, standing up a league on our website and going from there. What was the hardest part about doing that tour and trying to grow it? Because up to then, it sounds like it was just going to these cities, having a good time and just growing it. But imagine there had to be some difficulties in growing it as well. Lots of lots of growth struggles over the years. And that early phase, the growth struggle was the balance of how do you provide enough but not too much information or not get that hook that makes them part of Waka as opposed to just going and starting their own kickball. Right. That's what I would worry about too. Yeah. And there was a lot of trial and error. I mean, we created kickball in a box and we had a VHS tape that had some of our press because we had gotten on all the local news, our program from our first Founders Cup because we had had a player who was excited about publishing a paper program and sold little ad spots in it and all the things that you do for any community league or organization. And we put that all in a box with a kickball and a pump and a couple t-shirts and sent it to them. As we look around the industry today, and there's an organization called Social Sports Industry Association that has a lot of social sports companies in it, mostly single market clubs or companies, a lot of them, I would say probably more than half of them would attribute in some way, shape or form WACA to their creation or inception, whether through seeing our idea, playing in our leagues, or us actually coming and trying to help them start a league and then them deciding that they wanted to do it independently or felt that they could do it better independently or didn't see the value in what this company on the other coast was doing in Virginia and DC. There was some truth to that, right? Creating value at a distance is a challenge. We're much more fortunate now with the modern internet in how we can provide that value and really the experience and the scale that we've provided and as leverage has changed the model a lot. But that was a real challenge. And learning to manage people remotely at a distance was a challenge. As you know, and many of your listeners know, there's a whole universe of distributed or virtual or remote working these days. In 1998, there were not many companies doing that. 2001, there were not many companies doing that. And we were heads down trying to figure stuff out ourselves. That was the other challenge or realization is picking our head up and looking around instead of just beating our head against the wall, so to speak, and saying, well, we know how to do this. We're totally unique. This is something that nobody's ever done. So we're just going to do it however we see fit. Working off our own experience and past, my partners having been in a co-ed fraternity at UVA called Trigon and leveraging some of the cultural aspects of community from that. What I was learning in sort of the intelligence of the online world at America Online and community development and management practices there as a manager. We were putting those tools to work, but we really didn't pick our heads up and look around at the entrepreneur networks that are available, whether they were the Inc. 500, 5000 and Inc. Magazine Network, EO. There's a, a slew of networks that we have joined in the past decade that have really helped us strengthen our practices as businesses and as entrepreneurs. Yonder, is a great community for distributed businesses. So the challenge was sort of the internal challenge of waking up to realize that we have to, we don't know everything. We have to ask for help and we can sort of fast forward and accelerate if we leverage other people's experience. I imagine that you ended up looking back kind of the history of these social leagues, like you're saying. So what did people do before? Maybe like 10, 15, 20 years before that. Has a trend helped you? I haven't looked at it, but I imagine that you look at demographic trends and whatnot, maybe people waiting to get married, that kind of helps them have this free time to be able to do that. What was there before? 
in terms of outdoor recreation, it was mostly a municipality thing where you join a rec league and great experience for some. It didn't have the social component and it was being run by Parks and Recs and the sitcom gets a lot of things right about park and recreation in terms of maybe their motivation or what they focus on. So having somebody from Park and Rec run the leagues was nice, but it wasn't put out there as a premier product. The mega trend that I look at in that era is the privatization of social experiences and of entertainment experiences that has really happened. Kids used to play Sandlot baseball, and now not just Little League, but professional trainers out there with the kids, and everything is a paid experience now, right? So that mega trend sort of helps that people expect somebody else to do the heavy lifting of organizing and planning and basically, here's my money, tell me where to go so that I can have fun or get a little bit of exercise, right? And that's all sorts of things. That's the 5Ks, everywhere you look, there's been a lot of that. Also prior, I think there was just less organized social. You go to the bar and see who's there. So there was also a social sports industry before Waka. We were not the first ones, and we didn't find this out until five or 10 years into it. But there had been a consolidation of the local pop and pop, I call them, because it's usually or was usually a couple bros who would put together softball leagues and soccer leagues and charge people for them. It almost always grew out of somebody really wants to play organized sports so they start doing it, and then they realize it's a lot of work, so they start charging for it enough to make it worth their while. And in the 80s and 90s, these had popped up around the U.S., and someone came along and said, we should consolidate all of these, bought a bunch of them across the U.S. Right around 96, 98, it sort of all fell apart. I think it was a pull them all together, and it was too big of a thing to manage or whatever. I know some folks in the industry who picked up some of those pieces and launched Chicago Sport and Social. I think Houston Sport and Social sort of rose from the ashes of that. But there was a previous organization that did this on a smaller scale. But the internet really changed everything in terms of getting the word out and getting people who didn't think about playing sports. And this was our key difference, to get people who didn't think about playing sports as a social activity to come and play this goofy game of kickball as a social activity. And we continue that ethos with a fun first mindset in all the sports that we provide. There is always going to be competitiveness and we now have the World Championship Founders Cup in Vegas which has taken kickball to a level we never imagined and you can see some awesome videos of some really amazing feats of athleticism on the kickball field. It wasn't our whole thing was let's take non-athletes like ourselves and give them an excuse to go out there and run around for a little bit and then go and socialize. I would say in your favor, it seems like, yeah, trying to figure out beforehand, maybe it was 20 years beforehand you tried that, communication must have been much more difficult if you're trying to buy multiple leagues, pull them together. I don't know if you're just going to a landline phone to talk to these people, and that's the only type of communication you can really have in general, versus now, I guess, technology helped where it's easier to figure out how to stay in touch with these people to make sure that you're showing them the value that y'all can bring. Absolutely. Definitely. It's a lot easier to keep tabs, activities from a distance and to provide value from a distance, whether that's with video or Skype or Zoom like we're doing now, or whether that's saying, hey, post pictures on Instagram of the game and the social activities going on and, you know, use this hashtag or that. So that's definitely both add value and provide 
sort of a connection and understand what's going on. I also feel like in the early internet and mobile time, sort of that 2005 to 2010 era, a lot of people were stopping the random conversations in line and chance meetings because they were starting to look at their phone. 2007, the iPhone launched. 2012, it hit over 50% of the adult population in the U.S. In that time, people stopped having random conversations with strangers in public because they started just staring at their phone and not having those conversations. We provided an opportunity for random conversation and chance meet, not so chance meeting by creating this highly social co-ed environment that people could participate in. So we were filling a need at that time. And we very much catered to that. Fast forward to today, the newest generation of young adults, they're very comfortable with their primary socialization being through a screen held in their hand. All the trends tell you that they're dating later, marrying later, like you mentioned, staying home more as teenagers and young adults and not going and hanging out at the mall or even like we did. That's a challenge that I believe is impacting the industry, that we have to draw them out more. Of course, we now have a doorbell in their pocket. If we're clever about it or spend our dollars right, we can approach them on Snapchat and Instagram and Facebook uh, and wherever they like to socialize online. But bringing them out into public and hanging out with strangers is something that is not necessarily in their comfort zone. I thought I was going to look smart. I wrote this question down and I was about to ask that. Could you just talk about that a little bit more, trying to figure out the way to get them involved? Because my thinking is that it's the thought process that feels good to them that, hey, yeah, I like to join, but then they just don't do it. Or again, like you were saying, it's a great way to meet people originally when they are looking at it. Like I joined because I wanted to meet new people. It's just something different and fun to do. I could understand 10 or 15 years younger than me. I'm 32 that, hey, yeah, they're used to just doing everything on the phone and actually getting them out to socialize. We compete with Tinder. You know, that sort of lays it out right there. How am I going to meet folks? Well, I can, if I'm really looking to meet that special someone for a night or a week or a month or my whole life, Club Walk is a pretty good way to do that, right? But you have to go online and register and commit to putting on sneakers and running around a field and sweating and going into a bar sweaty and then trying to meet somebody or having the opportunity to meet somebody, whether it's on the field or, or in the bar, versus swipe left, swipe right, swipe left, swipe right, good to go. That is a challenge. The things that I think help us and that we focus on are classic tried and true tools, referrals, net promoter score, NPS, I'm sure you and many of your listeners are familiar with that, but happy to talk a little more about that. But making sure that we provide a great experience that people are likely to talk about so that they can bring a friend or when they do talk to strangers, this is one of the things they talk about as this goofy thing they do, whether it's in an interview for a job or just somebody they're talking to on the airplane, if they're heading to our mega event in Las Vegas, they're going to say why they're going. And energizing our customers to want to talk about it is key. And the other piece is working hard to keep up with the social media du jour, right? It's always changing. Facebook wasn't even a thing when we started. And then it became the most powerful marketing tool in the known world. 
there was a moment in time, and we talked about this, where free Facebook posting was the most valuable way to get in front of people and start conversations and get going. It came and went. And right after that, there was paid was really valuable, but we knew it was only going to be a moment before it got saturated. So you're always trying to stay on top of, is it Instagram? Is it Snapchat? What Apple, what way to use it? What can you do organically? What do you have to do in the paid space to make sure you're getting in front of those new customers? and keeping your old customers engaged and coming back. I could see it kind of working in two favors for you. I've heard of like adult camps for a weekend. You just go with random people. You have to leave your cell phones or whatever, or maybe people my age or a little bit older are going to do that just to do something different because they're tired of doing the same thing or actually not even socializing with people at all. I guess it could kind of work in two ways. But you had mentioned net promoter score too. Could you expand on that? Because I'm not familiar with it. Okay, great. Net Promoter Score, while you're not familiar with the term, you've definitely been a part of the Net Promoter Score universe. Anytime you receive a question from a company that says, how likely are you to recommend this product or service or company on a scale of 1 to 10, you are being asked the one Net Promoter Score question. Uh, That is the one question, how likely are you to recommend on a scale of 1 to 10, and then there's some Net Promoter math that's done where basically if you are unlikely to recommend a one through six, you're a detractor or a negative, maybe it's one through five, and then six and seven are neutral, and eight, nine, ten are recommenders, basically. So there's a formula that results in what some people refer to as a percentage. It's not truly a percentage, but this gives you a single number where really anything above 35 is a pretty good net promoter score. Apple, at its best, will get a 70. 55 is a great net promoter score. And that means you will be able to see word of mouth referrals impact your business in a positive fashion. That's net promoter score. We run net promoter surveys. We've done it in a variety of ways over the years. We're now using netpromoter.io, which is a service created by the folks who came up with the net promoter score. And it's got a little bit of CRME customer service tool set in there, but it's a, it's a pretty solid tool. We just started using it recently. But we survey on the league level, on the bar sponsor level, on the event level. You mentioned adult summer camps. We provide a couple of those a year, East Coast, West Coast. We will run a net promoter survey to the people who attend that afterward. We'll add other questions in there for greater context or insight, either in the same survey or as a follow-up to those who responded. But it's a really good tool for that. Well, we pulled our audience and we have a net promoter score of 69. So (laughs) doing this... Kickball, it sounds like a great time, a great job. Must be loving life. Have you been doing it the whole time? What did you start off doing there? And what have you grown into as far as the role now? Right. Great question. And you alluded to it. There's also some in-between and other activities that I've focused my time on at different times throughout my time here. When it was just a hobby, we all sort of did everything. When I first went full-time, I actually had worked a lot on the sponsorship side of things. I really like talking to other businesses, selling or convincing them that we're a great partner. I worked on bar and other sponsorships as well as marketing and PR. We were very focused on PR in the early days. It was a very valuable tool for us right next to referrals as a main way to grow our business within markets and and across new markets, national press, regional press. That's what I worked on when I first came into the business as we grew and started hiring people at first to provide leagues and grow leagues on the ground and then to 
run departments like PR, like events, like sponsorships. I moved into leading technology and we, as I mentioned, had built our whole own software using the Drupal software stack. And I led a small team that first developed our homegrown non-Drupal system and then converted it over to Drupal. I think we had three or four developers when we had at sort of our peak of software development. And I was very comfortable there being from a software company background, being in quality assurance and having designed automation software myself. So that was a natural fit for me and scratched my technology itch as the sponsorship work scratched my business development and sort of business to business itch. So that was my main focus as well as wearing that owner hat and working that challenge of switching between an owner hat and an employee hat. In 2007, 2008, we hired a CEO, sort of an adult in the room. Working with him, we decided to launch franchising, went headfirst into franchising and worked with a franchising consultant and paid big dollars to have them develop a franchising model and marketing materials and an operations manual with us. I led that, and that was basically starting a new sister company next to Club Waka with a goal, according to the spreadsheets that the consultants worked with us on, of 217 franchises. We sold three franchises. Today, we did have success over the years with them. In the long run, we determined that our core model of corporately owned markets was the model that we liked the best and suited our skill set and business the best. And one second, did you have to buy those franchises back? Because I've never heard of this. Right. Well, one folded. One, we came to an agreement with the owner on good terms. And one is still running today. Okay. Uh, New Orleans is a great. Sean Gobert uh, provides great kickball and other social sports down there in New Orleans, which is a place that the three owners are very familiar with. We've spent combined over 25 years of Mardi Gras down there, though that's in our far off past now for the most part. But yeah, that was a great learning experience in franchising. I built up a team of five or seven full-timers as well as leveraged some of the team. Mostly I was working with a trainer to train our franchisees and maintain our operations manual, a couple sales folks, um, and some of our marketing resources. It was a funny time to try to do that. The recession hit. It was a fairly new model in terms of trying to get someone to dedicate their full-time work to a model like this. There are folks who do it in a sort of a part-time model with youth sports and other things. Again, great learning experience. We still have the franchising company. We still have all that experience, the playbook on the shelf, so to speak. Then I went back to managing sponsorships, but going to national sponsorships and really working on trying to get those big relationships. Landed a few really big relationships and helped the teams in market with their local and regional sponsorships. And that's been my work in Club Waka sort of on a big picture. So I did a lot of different things. In 2015, I actually took a step back from day-to-day operations, sort of went and got what I consider my MBA by at first participating in an angel investment fund. And then that's what I thought I was going to do. But then being asked to take the lead on the fundraising and the management of the Hudson Valley Startup Fund. 
fantastic experience, really wed a lot of my experience and desires to learn more about investor capital as opposed to bootstrapping, which Club Walker was a bootstrap company. We used our own money and then a little bit of traditional bank and credit card credit but had never gone and raised money or sold any piece of the company. And we still have not to this day, but I was curious and we have had investor prospect us and come and talk to us. And I wanted to really understand that universe as well as give back to the Hudson Valley where I had moved in 2005 back to where I grew up and had decided to raise my family in the beautiful village of Rhinebeck. There's the whole startup ecosystem and you're familiar with this. A lot of your listeners are familiar with this. The meat of the startup ecosystem is in Silicon Valley, New York City, and Boston. But there is a big movement fronted by folks like Steve Case, formerly of AOL, Fred Wilson, Paul Singh, startup junkies, who promote the startup mindset everywhere else, that you don't have to just go to one of these big cities or even the second tier ones like Austin to make it happen. Brad Feld is another huge one with his book, Startup Communities, and what he did in Colorado to really create a startup community. So I joined the startup community of Hudson Valley here, threw myself into really learning that and mentoring and giving back based on my, at the time, 17 years of experience as an entrepreneur to help other people accelerate the growth of their business. And I continue to work on that, though. I sort of say that I graduated as we have deployed most of the first million dollar fund that we raised uh, across about a half a dozen companies, and we will be raising a second fund. But now we have 44 entrepreneur, excuse me, investors in the Hudson Valley that we brought together that are investing through the startup fund, but also in small groups, supporting opportunities for companies here in the Hudson Valley that are looking to start up and scale. And by scale, I mean, These are not companies that are looking to bring in a couple hundred thousand or even a couple million dollars in revenue, but that see over the next five, 10 years, they have an opportunity to tackle a market that has 10 million up opportunity, 10 million, 50 million, 100 million in revenue. And they know that the way to achieve those goals is to raise capital so that they can spend money faster. They can earn it in the early days with the goal of either being acquired by a company who sees their product fit into their portfolio or create that revenue stream, that profitable revenue stream as they hit a critical mass, uh, whether that's at 10 million in revenue or 5 million in revenue or 50 million in revenue. And when you decided to join this, make this fund, were you just getting bored of being at a kickball league or personally, was there a reason why? Good question. Good question. Not bored. We had grown a super capable team. At Club Waka, we had had our best year ever, best revenue, best growth, best profitability. We had a great team there on the ground. We are a three-headed beast. There are three equal owners, which creates its own set of challenges. And we all started to wanted to know what it would look like if one of us could step back. Is that possible with maybe the dream being, could we all three be silent owners at some point in the future? Is that the way that this company continues? Or how does that work? That was a little bit of it. The other part was really that desire to scratch the technology itch again and wondering, is there another technology company in my future? And what does that look like? There are some obviously very exciting technologies right now. I've continued to stay abreast of the latest technologies 
at least a couple layers deeper than the average enthusiast or hobbyist, as well as that, like I said, to really gain a more sophisticated understanding of raising capital and the investor mindset, both in strategic investing and venture capital. And give back to my community here. This was one thing that could check a lot of boxes for me. It's funny, I recently read actually a podcast transcription with Tim Ferriss. Oh, ours. You read ours. We did interview Tim Ferriss. Where he, it might have been yours, where he did. No, we haven't yet. We haven't yet. I'm kidding. uh, He did a a similar thing. He probably had a little more capital to start with. I know he did because he said he took $120,000 and he had friends who were angel investors and he asked one to basically be his mentor. And for two years, he was going to teach himself how to identify successful businesses and mentor them. He considered it his MBA. He ended up having some great luck and great instinct and really helping some companies out with his experience and mindset that really launched his career to another level. It's funny that, you know, I did not read or know that Tim Ferriss considered his angel investing as an MBA, but I talk about it and I say it was cheaper And it doesn't, you know, I don't have a Wharton. I can't say that I went to Wharton on my LinkedIn profile or anything, but it built a community that continues to build and provide value and that hopefully I'm providing value in. It gave me some upside opportunity with a ton of risk and it educated me and it grew my skill set as a leader and a community builder. Those are a lot of the same things that people do an MBA for. I saw it as that. I'm very excited now to be back in this new role in Club Waka, as of really less than a month ago, leading sales and operations. We acquired a company about a year ago. It was the first acquisition we made. Well, you had to after you learned how to do that at the startup fund, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right. Funny, funny where that doesn't, doesn't coincide exactly with the work I've been doing with the startup fund. But the integration component was a huge education in and of its own for all of the company. How do you take another company and basically merge them, right? And whether it's an acquisition or a merger or whatever, I think when you're smartly trying to grow through an M&A strategy, you're looking for synergies, right? And we had very obvious synergies with Vavi out of San Diego. They had grown a density of revenue and participation in a medium to large size market that almost nobody in the industry can touch. They had a great team and methodologies for doing that, and they still have that great team. We had created a breadth of reach that no one else can touch. So it was a natural partnership, and everybody saw that. Did all the hard work, got everybody on the same page, combined the company. Now how do you leverage those two strengths, and how do you merge those two cultures? Where are they the same, and how do you play on the strengths, and where are they different, and how do you pace the integration and take the best practices from each. That has been a lot of work. I think that we've taken some huge strides in that and learned a ton. And I know that the team that we have today is really a one plus one equals three kind of thing in terms of leveraging those strengths in both directions. We're a distributed company. We're very comfortable in situations like you and I have here where we're having a meeting at a distance. Vavi has always had an office and been able to work face to face So that has been their expectation. They're learning how to work at a distance and becoming very comfortable with that. At the same time, we've established some offices and co-working spaces to start in some of our larger markets. And we're looking at other of their tactics and tool sets that they use 
that we already admired from a distance, but now we have all the expertise in-house to either be able to leverage them directly or train other members of our team to make that happen. And that's not even getting to how do you reconcile two different sets of books that do two different kinds of accounting that have different pricing structures and all of that. And your different states, right? So you deal with right. that. Well, we had significant business in California already. Okay. And if you can do business in California, you can do business anywhere. <laughs> it, it is the hardest place to do business. It's not bad. I don't want to put it that. It is just very consumer and individual friendly, which could be considered very good. So you have to really understand the law and your business model to ensure that it'll work. But like I said, for the most part, if it'll work in California, it'll work anywhere. Did you not expect that? I guess they were used to having kind of face-to-face -face meetings. You brought up a name. Was there anything else that maybe you didn't expect when you merged with the company that maybe you could warn other entrepreneurs about? I don't know about not expect, but hindsight 2020, plan, 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 and read that whole pick your head up. I think we could have had more conversations with folks who had gone through, and I would say their first merger or acquisition in terms of writing their plan and checking all of those boxes about culture and finances and org chart and have a plan and be willing to adjust. I think we had a broad stroke plan. We were willing to adjust. I think we could have moved a little faster if we had more detail on those plans. The other thing I would say is plan for a capital buffer because integration costs are a real thing, whether it's legal fees or extra accounting fees or capital that used to be collateralized by the previous owners. As a lot of entrepreneurs know who especially own LLCs, most of your credit is actually leveraged off your personal credit ability, either your collateral or your credit score or combination of the two. If the company was in part collateralized by previous owners credit, then that's something that you're going to have to take into account and make sure you have enough of that working capital to work through that. I appreciate you brought up a lot of tools, which I love because then people can pause it or we have it in the show notes at millionaire-interviews.com. Some of these things you've been saying. But one thing that I hadn't heard about that you say that you liked a lot was Crystal Nose. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Could you yeah. tell us about that? You said you weren't even affiliated with it or anything, but right. just No, I am not. And it's one of those things I don't even like to share because it's really <laughs> a competitive advantage. I paid for it a little while, especially when I was selling national sponsorships. And when I was soliciting investors for the startup fund, I had a pro or whatever level account it is. And they've recently revamped. Actually, they just sent an email out to their customers this morning that they've just raised 5 million series B, which is awesome because that means that the product's going to get even better. Crystal knows you connect it with your email and your social media accounts and your calendar. It tells you what personality type the people you're going to meet with are by scraping their social media and LinkedIn accounts and email interactions you've had with them in the past. So it does a disk profile on them, and then it tells you in one sentence how they like to interact in a meeting or in a phone call or in an email. And as you're writing emails to them in probably the paid versions, it corrects you just like a grammar correct or a spelling correct would do and say, don't use that kind of language with this kind of person not going to work. Keep your email shorter. Make your subject line sizzle. It's magical. It's using artificial intelligence and scraping technology. It's all the data we're putting out there being reformatted and it's really a neat tool. So crystalknows.com. I am not affiliated. I am just impressed. 
that's more for salespeople. You think would it help the most to try to figure out those personalities or is there somewhere other salespeople? They also sell product for team dynamics as well. You're having a group meeting. And again, this is now a pro tool, which means, you know, the paid product, but they will formulate recommendations on group dynamics. If you're going into a group meeting and that's helpful internally and externally. HR folks recruiting, it's very valuable. Anytime you're going to have a conversation with someone that you haven't met, it can be very valuable to get a sense of how you should manage that conversation. Whenever you might start a new kickball team, right? Right, or <laughs> interview somebody for a podcast. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> well, yeah, no, well, we appreciate you coming on and sharing your experiences. What do you see for yourself personally, like the future and walk a kickball? What, what are your plans going ahead? Great. Well, thanks. I look forward to continuing to grow Club Waka, really get that depth in other major markets around the U.S. that Bobby has succeeded in San Diego and that we have succeeded in in a handful of markets and continuing to provide fun, to let people be their most fun self. That's at all levels. That's as an individual player or somebody that's attending one of our events. That's as team captains who maybe their most fun self is actually pulling people together and not just being their own goofy self. As a community coordinator on our team who is providing leagues, activities, events individually, let them become that leader that they want to be, whether it's a community leader where they get to be the big king or queen, uh, queen bee out there on the sports field or in the bar socializing, all the way through our staff to really one of the things I enjoy the most is helping others become the leaders that they want to become. So any way I can do that in Club Waka, I look forward to continuing to do. I think we've got a lot of opportunity in the social sports industry itself, as well as in other micro events, so to speak, 500, 1,000 people and less events to schedule that little bit of fun in people's day or week. For myself personally, I do plan to continue to participate in the management of the Hudson Valley Startup Fund and mentor companies in our portfolio, as well as those learning how to communicate their story to raise the capital that they need to launch their dreams. And I also am fulfilling a dream that I've had for at least a decade since I moved to the Hudson Valley of launching a co-working space. So Co is in a co-op model. It is an LLC, but we are creating a model where investors, employees, members all have a say and a piece of the upside. And that's really what I see as one of the important aspects of the new economy is how do we create a more durable, sustainable entrepreneurial ecosystem. I love what I do with the startup fund to help people shoot for the stars. But the chance of success is less than 5% in the startup universe. There's plenty of opportunity for folks who are going to have a goal of creating a quarter million to $5 million business that could be much lower risk. So I want to support that as well and figure out what can I do to support that. I get to work with some great people with some new thoughts on investment capital to help support those causes. and. That's something that for now in my spare time and who knows down the road that I want to continue to learn about and educate others about. Based on your experience, what suggestions might you have for someone who's thinking they want to have a quarter billion dollar company versus being smart, intelligent, if you can get have a smaller company that's like more effective, less risk, if you will. Any suggestions since you did start up a startup fund? Right. Absolutely. It is really about wanting to play. What game do you want to play? 
the startup where you are using other people's capital and shooting for the stars, whether it's to get acquired by Google or Amazon or to launch a public company, that game is 24-7, high risk, pushing your comfort zone every day and working hard to learn the full suite of experiences at scale. And you have to be a little bit of an adrenaline junkie and a risk taker to play that game, but know what you're getting into. If you're looking to create a job for yourself so that you can have a lifestyle that you truly love, then taking other people's money is probably not the right path. And that not necessarily intentionally, but one of Waka's core values is family first. And that means that if my mom, who's 83, needs help and she lives a few blocks away in the middle of the day, I'm going to take that time out. Hopefully I'm not, if it's not an emergency, I'm not going to walk out of a meeting. But if it is an emergency, I am going to say, hey guys, I need to go take care of this. Again, that might not fly in a startup where the investors may be breathing down your neck to spend 70 to 120 hours a week getting it done. So it's a risk reward thing. If the reward is just the bottom line or being able to say, I started a company that went public or got acquired, then that's the startup route. Don't get me wrong. It's tantalizing. There are things that are very tantalizing to me about it. The other thing I would say is join a startup before you launch a startup. Find a way to be a part of an existing startup in the, ideally in the 20 to 100 person size, because they're already a little more stable Then maybe if you can find an, and they have more money, then maybe if you want to join a smaller team or start a team yourself, you can do that. But get an idea of what it looks like right after that first big growth hump, because there's a lot of learning to be done. And I think getting that perspective would be a big help. Well, you know, thank you for those points. And is there anything else that you want to leave us off with before we get up? Hey, go to kickball.com or clubwaka.com or govavi.com if you're in San Diego and get out there, play a little, be your most fun self, be funner, as we like to say. Come out and join us. You can catch me on LinkedIn as Johnny Kickball. Love to hear from anyone who has any questions. This was great. I really appreciate the time. Great conversation. And good luck to all of your listeners, the entrepreneurs out there. If someone wanted to reach out, is it best through LinkedIn or is there another method to the, if they wanted to say thanks for doing the interview? Twitter as Johnny Kickball is great. Just a shout out. LinkedIn is pretty good. If you want to see if there's some deeper match, my time post MBA, I'm putting that in air quotes. It's much more constricted with my sales and operations role at Club Waka now, but I'm always happy to answer a quick question or refer you somewhere. But let me know how you heard about it. Well, thanks for coming on and doing the show, Johnny. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to this awesome episode. Hope you enjoyed it. After careful deliberation, I've decided to release my top 10 episodes. So get out your pen and paper and write down these episode numbers. Episode 2 with Matt Gallant. Episode 11 with Eli Crane. Episode 24 with Jonathan Burlingham. Episode 32 with Adrian Salamunovich. And try episode 34 with Don DiCostanza. Episode 36 with Dan Fantasia. Episode 38 with Aaron Kraus. And try episode 39 with Luther Cyphers. And our last two episodes here, 
episode 62 with Andrew Sykes and episode 63 with Dan Cohen. Thanks again for listening and don't forget we're a virtual family here at Millionaire Interviews. That means you, the listener, the guest, the editors, and the host. And so don't forget our hell is a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Share the podcast.